Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of The Clerk Commute. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Mary Priestman from Mount Sinai Hospital about some of the soft skills in psychiatry. So without further ado, I'll let her introduce herself. Uh, so I'm Mary Priestman. I'm a staff psychiatrist at Mount Sinai Hospital. I do consultation liaison psychiatry. So I see consults on medical and surgical floors. My areas of clinical focus are the intensive care unit and uh, the obstetrical and postpartum floors, but I see consults in all areas of the hospital. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at U of T. I'm really involved in medical education at all levels for medical students, residents, and beyond. And uh, I'm pretty excited to be part of this podcast. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're very happy to have you and we're very excited to pick your brain about a couple things. So like I had mentioned before, today's podcast episode is going to focus less so on the academic medicine side of psychiatry and kind of tackle some of the more um, maybe soft skills, as you would say, or some things that we typically only see in psychiatry. So the first thing that we were hoping to talk to you about is, you know, sometimes when you're on the psych floor or seeing a patient in Emerge, um, it's not uncommon for um, them to be a little bit agitated or perhaps aggressive. And this can be very intimidating for clerks, especially um, at the beginning of their psych rotation. So what advice would you have in that sort of situation? So that's a great question. And this is something that I think is comes up in actually all clinical areas. So goes well beyond psychiatry because agitation is the final common pathway of a number of different things. So it can be driven by a psychiatric diagnosis, but lots of other things lead to agitation like dementia, delirium, intoxication, withdrawal. So we actually see it in all areas of medicine and psychiatry is a really good place to practice kind of knowing what to do. So the first thing is to recognize that it is it exists and you should be aware of it. So that's why I'm glad we're talking about it. The first thing to do at the beginning of the rotation is make sure that you know orientation-wise what your specific service does in the case of agitation. So you should make sure to cover like how to call a code white and when. When you should be getting somebody more senior to you, when you should be asking for help, who to reach out to first, is it your senior resident, is it your staff, like kind of having some framework of what to do. So that's the first thing. Before going to see a patient, really good to have some idea about how they are right now, and that's information that you can get from their nurse, from their charge, and sometimes you don't know because things change really quickly. So one of the things about agitation is you're going to want to know the signs and know when things are starting to escalate. So it's easy to know that it's agitation when you've got somebody who's yelling, who's thrashing, like that's obvious agitation. But there are things to start to look out for, like somebody who is growing restless, who is fidgeting a lot, who's starting to pace, who is talking more loudly, who's escalating in terms of their tone, or the rate of their speech. And those are all things that should be kind of red flags in your mind that this is somebody who's heading towards agitation. So being able to recognize that is really important because at the medical student level, if a patient that you're with is starting to escalate, you really wanna make sure that you have a safe exit strategy from that clinical space and that you're able to call for help and support quickly. So what that means is if you're in a patient's room, you always want to position yourself closer to the door than your patient. 
and you wanna make sure that there are no barricades in your way such that if you need to get out of there quickly, you are always standing closer to the door. That's always a helpful thing to do, but especially when you're going to see somebody where you're not sure or you're worried. Another thing is you wanna interact with patients at their level. So if your patient is standing, you may wanna ask them to sit down. And when I say ask them, I don't mean say, would you like to sit down? Because then you're gonna hear back, no. And then you're gonna to have to deal with that. So you instead, you suggest that the patient sit down. For example, have a seat. Please have a seat are phrases that you could use that are quite direct that invite your patient to sit down. If your patient doesn't sit down, you also don't sit down. So you wanna make sure again that you're staying at the same level as your patient. If your patient is seated, you're welcome to go ahead and sit. If your patient is lying down, you're welcome to go ahead and sit. Like don't also lie down, I don't recommend that. But if you are in a situation where your patient is standing, you remain standing if they are. So that way you're able to quickly get out of that clinical space. And again, you're positioning yourself closer to the door. If you start to notice those signs of escalation, it is absolutely appropriate to try a few things. One is to comment on what's happening. I notice that you're stressed at the moment. What's happening for you? When I brought up discharge, I noticed that you started talking more loudly. Tell me about that. So you can comment on what's going on to try to work with your patient. Or, you know, again, the helpful phrase is, I notice. So I notice that when I said something that you, you stood up, like help me understand what happened. So good to have some phrases like that. One or two of those and they're not working, you get yourself out of that space and you get help. So in the same way that when you're with a patient who seems to be clinically deteriorating, you're worried you're heading towards a code blue as somebody with abnormal vital signs, agitation is the absolute same thing. If you're heading towards a code white or a call for support around agitation, you wanna get out of the room and make sure that you're notifying the people who can help you. So that's the patient's nurse and the rest of your clinical team. You want to make sure you know how to call a code if you are the only person there. And that's what you're going to find out before all of this happens at your orientation. And then what you do if you're actually the person who's going to be calling a code is to stay, not with the patient, but at the nursing station. Because then when the code white team comes, who's typically comprised of a psychiatrist, nurses, and security, you will be able to communicate what happened. So your role at that point isn't to try to directly subdue the patient or to work with the patient. You are then responsible for the communication piece and explaining what happened. Like I delivered a form 42 to this patient and then that was the trigger for the screaming and they knocked over their water, something like that. So you want to make sure that you understand the signs of agitation. You have a plan to get yourself out of the space safely, that you know exactly who to tell. And that if you're going to be participating in a code white, that you are clear what your role is. And your role is typically one of communication, completing legal forms, and you want to have a pretty good sense of that. So you want to communicate directly with your team about what's expected of you. And if not, what you can do is make sure you're not in the way, because a lot of clerkship is just not being in the way and observing and learning what happened so that when there is a debrief, which there should be after an agitation event, that you can ask questions and understand what happened and why it happened. If you want to level up, you might know what kind of medications to use and how to offer them, but at clinical clerk level, you want to make sure 
you are doing your very best to maintain your safety, maintain the patient's safety, get out quickly, ask for help, and know exactly what that process is gonna look like, remembering that agitation in our patients is scary for all of us, and experience and having a plan for what to do is what really helps to mitigate that. So no expectations that you would know how to do all of those things, but expectations that you maintain your safety, you don't do things that you would perceive as heroic, you wouldn't lay hands on a patient, you would make sure that you get appropriate help. So Excellent. Thank you for um, shedding some light on that because I do know that that's definitely an area where most clerks, we haven't had, you know, an encounter with an agitated patient um, yet, and it can definitely be overwhelming. So that was very helpful. Um, now, sort of similarly, but different, um, what, what would your approach be if you were interviewing a patient and they maybe didn't become agitated, but they sort of became more emotional or started to cry? Because I know that this can be difficult for some clerks and just for people in general, you know, when the people around you start to cry, sometimes we don't really know how to react. Do you have any tips for that? Sure, absolutely. And one of the things that makes this a uniquely challenging encounter is that people cry in all settings, not just in psychiatry. So this is very relevant to every clerkship rotation. And some people cry when we expect them to cry and other people cry when we might not expect them to cry. So it's good to have a few approaches to kind of navigating that situation, recognizing that it makes us feel uncomfortable sometimes. So our sort of gut instinct when someone starts to cry as a lay person in the community is to say like, oh, don't cry, you'll be okay. And in a patient care encounter, there are maybe some times where that's appropriate, but mostly not. So what I might suggest is if somebody starts to cry, that you don't necessarily need to respond right away with words. What you might do is a gesture, like find the closest tissue box and hand it to the patient. So you're doing something that demonstrates compassion and empathy, like you acknowledge that they're crying and you're offering them something. And you can say things like, take your time. What that does is shows your patient that you recognize that they're having an emotional response and that you're not gonna flee or run away from it. And then you can say, any number of things, as long as they are genuine with a spirit of empathy. So what you don't wanna do is shut down the emotions or say, don't do that or imply that it's wrong. Rather, you may try any number of things. So if your patient is crying in response to something that is lots of stressful things that they've talked about, you can just reflect back what they said. Like, you've really told me about a lot of very stressful things, like that's a lot. Or like, my gosh, you're dealing with so much. I can see that that brings up tears for you. I can see how difficult it is for you to talk about that. So there, all you're doing is you're kind of noticing, you're reflecting, and you're communicating to your patient that you are with them in their emotional experience. When somebody cries when maybe you didn't expect them to cry, you can comment on that and say, again, the I noticed is a really powerful phrase. So you might say, you know, I noticed when we talked about your medication list, that that brought up some tears for you. Tell me, tell me what happened there. And you are approaching that in a kind of inquisitive, non-judgmental way with an open-ended question that allows your patient to comment on what they were thinking about or what was happening for them that might lead to lines of communication that really help you to understand that particular patient. So 
that can be really helpful and not, not wanting to leave, not shutting it down, just really sitting with people while they have emotions, provided that it's safe and the patient's not agitated and you're, you feel comfortable can be a really, really meaningful gesture and something that you can do that isn't itself therapeutic and supportive, even if you don't feel like you're really doing anything. So sitting people with people at their most kind of vulnerable and difficult moments is one of the tasks of being a doctor. So that's important. The other thing is when you manage something like this, it's always really helpful to talk about it with your residents or your staff supervisor, whether it's agitation or emotion or crying, something that's a new experience for you. Once you sit with that, it's hard, right? It's hard to watch another human being suffer in some way. And so when you have more experience with it, it starts to become easier to process and is still always worth talking about. So if you go through something like that with a patient, it is never wrong to talk about it with your team so that you can debrief it even if it wasn't a kind of formal event because it's a big deal to be an adult learner who is new really intelligent but not necessarily so skilled or experienced to manage somebody who's showing you all of these really acute emotions great again that's excellent advice um to sort of build off of that you know you had mentioned you know saying things like reflecting back on what they had said or kind of validating their emotions, but what do you do if you're in a situation, you know, be it agitation or someone is crying or whatever have you, where you don't know what to say to a patient or you don't know how to respond to what they're saying to you? So that's a great question. And that that's a lot of the clerkship experience is being unsure what to say. So one of the things that tends to happen is at the clinical clerk level, you feel like you need to write everything down because you become anxious and worried that if you don't document everything that your patient said that you're gonna forget it. So one of the pitfalls that people fall into is writing things where it becomes difficult to stay engaged with the interview. So what I actually recommend is you wanna have a pen and paper partially because you're gonna to need to write some things down and partially because it feels settling to be holding something so that you feel important because you have a pen and paper. But really what you need to write down are things like ages, uh, medication doses, specific dates and hospitalizations, things like that. But when someone's telling you their story, you will remember more than you think. So staying actively listening really allows you to be more of a participant in one of those encounters. And then if you don't know what to say, when someone gives you like an awful lot of information, it's really helpful to have a few tools in the toolkit. So even saying like, that's a lot when someone tells you a lot of things, like that's a, that's a great response, right? Because you're acknowledging that they've told you a lot of information. Sometimes you can say like, wow, that's, that's a lot of information. And that's, you know, you just reflect on that's a lot of information. And so you're kind of acknowledging what's happened. You can also try summarizing what the patient has said. And you can say like, I wanna make sure that I've understood correctly all of the things that you've just told me, so I'm gonna to try to summarize it. And then in summarizing it, we sometimes come up with the next thing to say. Or we make reflections or we say like, so I think what you're trying to tell me is, and then you sort of synthesize what you've heard as an opportunity for your patient to give feedback about yes, that's right, or well, actually, that's not exactly my experience. And so what you're doing there is that you're showing that you're actively listening. One of the things that you want to avoid is actually worrying so much about 
what you're going to say next that you stop listening because then you'll definitely not know what to say next. And then you can always play the medical student card. And that's the luxury of being a medical student is, you know, your patient might ask you, so what should I do? Or what's the solution to my problem? And that's a good place to say, you know what, that's a great question. You've told me a lot of really helpful information. What I'm going to do next is I'm going to summarize everything we've talked about. I'm going to review it with my team. And then we're going to come back later today and go over the next steps in your care so that you don't feel pressured to give answers or to come up with something where you're quite uncertain about what to do. And even if you do know what to do, because it's a relatively straightforward case and you're not sure that you want to talk about specifics yet, that's a good place to pull reverse rank. So the reverse rank is really, I'm a clinical clerk. I want to make sure that I cover everything. I'm going to go back and review with my supervisor. We're going to look at all of the different investigations that you've had so far. We're going to come back to you with some conclusions and hopefully some future directions for your care. So again, just indicating a wish to be helpful, a wish to understand the situation, a wish to contribute something without needing to commit to something when you're not exactly sure what to say. Excellent. Again, some really good advice. Um, I think the last sort of thing we'll talk about and the last kind of question I have for you is, you know, throughout clerkship, uh, medical students are constantly changing and learning new skills and it's very fast paced and you know um, a lot of times you know just as soon as you kind of get comfortable with something you're kind of on to the next thing so what would your advice be for kind of these feelings of uncomfort or you know being unsure of like what the next best steps are sort of in certain clinical situations well, I guess the, the really the thing there is, is that that's what clerkship is. Clerkship is learning how to be uncomfortable and uncertain and to really lean into those feelings and to own them. And as soon as you feel comfortable, you have to move on. And so being able to tolerate that is actually one of the, one of the things that you learn in clerkship which allows you to be a good doctor because it means that you can tolerate uncertainty, that you can tolerate complexity, and that you can have the experience of being an adult who's able to acknowledge when you don't know something. So knowing that that's part of the experience and that's a shared experience. There is no clinical clerk who knows everything. There's no resident who knows everything. In fact, there's no staff who knows everything. So as you ascend through your training, you will know more and you will feel more confident and you will feel more comfortable. And in a way that that's how you're supposed to feel. You're supposed to feel like this is new and I'm not exactly sure how to position myself. And you will learn over the course of the rotation and you need to be kind to yourself around this is an expectation. Like I'm not supposed to be an expert about this. That's why I go to medical school. That's why I will do a residency and then I will become an expert once I've completed all of those things and gain experience. So knowing that you're not supposed to know everything. And one of the other ways to tolerate all of the kind of uncertainty and the constant change and upheaval, especially with all the external factors like COVID and everything else that kind of pivots what we're supposed to be doing, is to make sure that your self-care game is strong. So when there are things that you cannot control about your life, like what happens to you in your clerkship rotation, you want to make sure that you're really focusing on the things that you can control. So good habits, making sure that your nutrition is on point, that you're physically active, that you're socializing to the extent that you can with the people that care about you, 
you're taking breaks when you need them, that you ask for help when you need it, that you're managing your time and your schedule, that you do some things that are fun, that you do some things from which you derive meaning. So those are the things that you should be doing because those things are within your control and they will keep you well. So when you're dealing with the confusing emotional turmoil of clerkship, you know that you're gonna have something reasonable for dinner, that you're maybe gonna do a workout and that you're gonna talk to a friend and that in itself is settling. Excellent, again, thank you so much for all of this advice and sort of talking about some of the more less medical um, aspects of clerkship. So thank you for, for sure. joining us. The last us. thing I'll say, and this is my advice to everyone, is find a mentor. Yeah. Like there's lots of formal mentorship programs and those are really great. And if you can find someone that you think is a like-minded person that you worked well with, who you get them and they get you, make sure that you figure out a way to stay in touch because those are the people who will help guide you at your times of most uncertainty. So healthcare is about relationships. Medical education is about relationships. Don't forget about the important relationships in your life professionally and personally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great episode. Don't forget to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast app and follow our Twitter account at The Clerk Commute for updated episodes coming to you shortly.